I love music. Always have, and I think I always will. Growing up in my house, we had stacks of CDs. Yes, CDs, back in the good old days. From all sorts of artists. We listened to music by Michael Jackson, Phil Collins, Tupac, and many others. Music seems to have always been a part of my life. Listening to it and even singing along to it. As I reflect on why I love music, three reasons come to my mind. The first reason that I think I love music is that music captures the whole range of human emotions, doesn't it? I find it impossible to listen to Happy by Pharrell and not feel good and bob my head along to it. The second reason I love Music is because it gives me language and sounds to express those emotions. The instruments, the vocals, the passion, and the story open a window into the artist's life that I start to relate with. So I've sung Tupac's Dear Mama to and with my mom many, many times in order to express my gratitude to her. And here's the third reason I love music. Once a song captures our emotions and gives us language, we can't help but sing along with the artist, right? I mean, if I start with three words with my two-year-old or my four-year-old, if I say, let it go, <laughs> they will automatically start singing, let it go, let it go. Or if I hear the dun, 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 from Billie Jean, I look for my wife and I look for a dance floor automatically. How is it that music can capture our emotions and give us language which leads us to express ourselves? I think it's because our delight in music only comes full circle once we express ourselves by singing along. And C.S. Lewis said, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete till it is expressed. Here's why music is so powerful, I think. Because... When we're drawn in, and it strikes an accord with our hearts, it can work on our value structures either positively or negatively. Like a close friend, music can influence us for better or for worse. Well, the Bible is full of wholesome music by different artists expressing different emotions which may work on our value structures. And the song we're going to look at today might work on your value structures today. As this morning, we look at a song which gives us language to express delight in God. What we'll see today is that um, Scripture is not a cold old book which just tells you what to do. No, Scripture doesn't just command what we're to believe about God and how we're to live for Him. It also commands us how we're to feel about Him. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice in the Lord. And the song we're going to look at has a theme, an emotion of joy in it. 
In other words, God intends to be the Lord of our thoughts, actions, and emotions. We're to worship him with our mind, actions, and affections. So today we're going to read an ancient song that was to be sung and played with stringed instruments. Maybe back then it was a harp. Maybe today we'd sing it along with a guitar. But the writer of Psalm 67 states quite clearly what he values in this song. This song calls all the nations of the world to joy, uh, to, to join in the joyful song of praise to the God of Scripture. And like good music, I hope this song pulls you in by the vocals and causes you to sing along as well. Though this song is joyful and upbeat, it's also quite challenging. For us who worship and love God, it's a challenging psalm because the artist's desire, because of the artist's desire to do good to those outside of his community and continent, that confronts our apathy. For others, the song challenges us by evaluating what we're currently praising and worshiping instead of God. Every one of us here is a worshiper, whether we're religious or not. I love what uh, David Foster Wallace said, who was not a religious man. He once said candidly, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everyone worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. May God help us to choose and value him as the object of our song and worship today. As we look again at another of our uh, messages in this series on worship. So will you please stand with me as we read from Psalm 67. That's on page 481 of the Bibles in front of you. This is a happy song. Listen to it. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us. Selah. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. Let's pray for a moment. Father in heaven, as we think of tuning our hearts to sing thy grace and thy praise, would you grab a hold of our hearts now with this song and may you give us a passion for what the songwriter has a passion for as well. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As music communicates emotions through sounds and lyrics, scripture communicates emotions through tones in texts. 
Did you catch the tone of Psalm 67 when we read it? There's a, a tone of worldwide blessing, praise, and joy in the God of Scripture. These lyrics communicate one theme which support the tone. And here's the theme. God blesses his people to send his blessing through them to the nations of the world. God blesses his people to send his blessing through them to the nations of the world. The first thing we see in this text is the songwriter's request and reason for God's blessing. Look at that in verse 1 and 2. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine upon us that your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. These two verses show us the prayer and motive of the songwriter. His request and reason for God's blessing blends two major blessings in the Old Testament. He starts by restating the famous blessing from Numbers 6, 22 to 27. So we're going to look at that for a second here. That's called the Aaronic blessing or Aaron's blessing. This is what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Okay, this is a blessing and it is a request of God's Loving presence, leadership, and radiance to beam down on his people, which in the old covenant was Israel. They are a special people, not because they're a cut above other nations, but because God is their God. And he put his name on them, as verse 27 says. Which is another way of saying that the God of Scripture identified with this particular people and he was with this particular people. These are his people. They belong to him. They are his possession. He is their God and they are his people. Now, as we come this side of the cross, is there any significance to this blessing for us today who aren't Jewish? Yes, even in the new covenant, the church is a people that God puts his name on, right? Remember Jesus' last words in the Great Commission? As we heard a couple weeks ago, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of God the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. His name and his presence are in that great commission. So, in the New Testament, those of us who are followers of Jesus, the church is sent out to the nations, and we're given the blessing of being identified with the God of Scripture, and he identifies with us. We're identified in the name of God the Father 
God the Son and God the Holy Spirit by baptism. Which means we identify with the three-person God. And in baptism, we identify with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So the three-person God still identifies with his people and with his church. And that means he is our God. And we are his people and he is with us. So this blessing is what the writer of Psalm 67 has in mind here in verse 1. Now as we think through this verse, we're going to connect it to the gospel and see how Christ has given us these benefits from verse 1 and many, many more. So first, let's look at the first request, which is fulfilled in the gospel. All these requests are fulfilled in the gospel. So first, the text says, may God be gracious to us. The Bible teaches us that God is gracious to us because God is gracious. I know that sounds redundant, but let me say it one more time and I'll tell you why it matters. The Bible teaches us that God is gracious to us because because God is gracious. In other words, God shows us favor or grace, not because we're morally virtuous, but because his heart is kind. This is the basic message of Christianity, and it sets it apart from all the other religions of the world. It's a word of grace. It's a promise of favor from a God who is gracious. Christianity is based on God's grace. But even Christians easily slip in their thinking here, don't we? Our heart's default mode is to assume that God is kind to us because we're good people and frankly, we're better than the rest. Israel was tempted to think that way and so are we today. But scripture teaches from front to back that all have crooked hearts and none of us deserve to be favored by God. We've turned our back on God. But it also teaches from first to last that God is a wonderfully gracious God who delights to show grace to rebel people. And Jesus came into this world expressing and embodying that very grace. He came into this world as God in flesh and bones who was full of grace and truth. And God's grace is always the basis for friendship with him. And friend, you've never met a more gracious person than Jesus, the God-man. Which means you can stop posing to get his attention. Friendship with God can't be earned. We must receive it based on his grace toward us. He's gracious because he's gracious. So you know what this means? It means we can stop trying to sneak our donations into our salvation. It's all of grace. Have you received his grace? A connection with Jesus can't be paid for. It must be accepted by trusting in his words. Run to Jesus empty-handed. His friendship comes by his free grace and we receive it by faith. 
our relationship with God is all of grace or nothing. Um, there was a guy named uh, Thomas Goodwin, and he was a uh, young pastor. And there was another guy who was an older pastor who was kind of mentoring him named Richard Sibbs. And um, his advice to Thomas Goodwin, who was the younger of the two, Richard Sibbs' advice was, uh, young man, if ever you would do good as a pastor, you must preach the gospel of the free grace of God in Jesus Christ. If you want to talk more about the free grace of God in Jesus Christ, please talk to me afterwards. The message of the Bible, the message of Christianity, is a message that is based on God's grace. And the hope of the gospel is a hope in God's promised grace. Back to our text in verse 1. Next it says, may God bless us. Here the request for God's blessing is a request for his personal presence with his people. The blessing of all blessings is God himself with us. And here the privilege of God's blessing is summed up with his presence. For us on the other side of the cross, we know Jesus didn't just come to live among us on earth, die on the cross and rise again and ascend to heaven. No, he also sent his Holy Spirit to be with us in our hearts. The Holy Spirit is right now in every believer which shows us how the gospel fulfills this request. He is God's presence with us, the Holy Spirit, and he promises never, ever to leave us. A few weeks ago, I was talking to someone who works with teenagers. This person was telling me how many teens depend on likes to get them through the day. Likes, yes, likes. Uh, Many teens are emotional yo-yos depending on how many people like their Instagram photos. If they don't get as many as they want, they just take their photos off Instagram and consider themselves a failure. It's a real thing, right? Um, Their self-worth depends at times on how many people like them. Now, it's human nature to want approval from others, we're, we're made for relationship. We, we like approval. However, the approval that matters most is not our friends on Instagram, but the God who created us. So, does the God who created us like us? And if so, how can we be so sure? That question is very close to the question asked next in verse 1. Listen to verse 1. May God make his face to shine upon us. Here the idea is not only that God would approve of us, but delight or like us as a parent smiles over their child. Glowing over them. So can we be so bold to say that we've received the glowing approval of God in the gospel? That's a pretty bold claim. For all who believe in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, absolutely this is true. God not only approves of you, delights in you, likes you. He has taken his hatred of sin out on his son on the cross. He turned his back on Jesus so he could turn his face towards us who believe in Jesus. He is pleased with his son. 
He can freely shine his approval and delight upon us, all of us who believe in Jesus. Yes, he likes us. Every believer is connected to Jesus by faith. And because of our connection with Jesus, we enjoy the same love that the Father has for his Son. Listen to how Jesus prays for believers in John 17, verse 23. He prays that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Wow. The approval, the delight, the like of the Heavenly Father because of our connection with Jesus Christ. That's something to write home about. A few weeks ago, I was at the car wash and something almost too good to, true hap- uh, too good to be true happened to me. I drove into the bay and reached for my money when I looked at the street- screen and could hardly believe my eyes. The timer was already on, it was ticking, and I, it had 15 minutes still on it. I was like, what? Put my money right back down. And I was like, yes! All right! Which meant I didn't have to pay $4 for the car wash, but I had ample time to give a nice lavish wash to my dirty car. I was super excited about that. Well, after a few minutes of joyfully cleaning my car, I realized I have way more than enough time here. I, I don't know what to do with the rest of my time. What am I going to do with the rest of the minutes I have? And then I realized God was giving me an opportunity to practice what I preach. So the idea came to me. Get out of the bay and let the next person enjoy a free wash too. I'm slow. I'm a slow learner. So I sped out of there. I kept my eyes on the bay as the next person uh, comes in line. And they were taking their time looking for their cash. And I was just, I ran up to the guy. I was a little bit loud. I, I might have scared him. <laughs> I, I ran up to the guy and I said, no, 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 stop. Go, grab it. Just use it. It's already paid for. Just use it. He's like, oh, okay. <laughs> Goes and grabs the thing. <laughs> and in that moment, I realized that God was giving me this car wash as another reminder of the gospel. We've been given so much more than we deserve in Jesus Christ. So much more than we could ask for in Jesus Christ. But we can't stay in the bay and just focus on ourselves. No, we've got to keep bringing people into the bay and tell them in the gospel, just use it, it's already been paid for, just use it. With great blessings come great responsibilities, church. Gospel bearers need to be gospel sharers. Do these truths make you want to get out there? Do something? Let someone else in the bay? That's the direction the author of Psalm 67 goes next in verse 2. He had prayed for these grand blessings to be on us, his community, right? But he did that, and here's the motive for why he did that. Verse 2. That your way may be known on earth, your saving powers among all nations. He did not use all sparingly. Now before we read Genesis 12, which is the blessing referred to here, let's remember Genesis 11 to catch the context of this grand blessing. 
It'll be the, known as the Abrahamic covenant or the blessing of Abraham. Do you remember what happened in Genesis 11? Yeah? It's the Tower of Babel, right? You like that story? At this point, at the Tower of Babel, in human history, mankind was uniting in rebellion to make a name for themselves, right? And instead of multiplying and filling the earth, they stayed in one place so that they could make a tower with the top reaching into the heavens, right? They're working for a monument of human achievement together. It's a picture of human rebellion and pride. And because of this unified rebellion, God sees that it's not a good thing. And he actually comes down to judge the people who up to this point only spoke one language, one tongue. And this is how he did it. In Genesis 11, verses 7 through 9, it records the Lord saying, Come, let us go down and there confuse the language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Okay, so mankind was uniting in rebellion around an evil cause and because of this, God judged humanity and divided them up. Divided them from one another, scattering people throughout the world with different languages as a restraint to unified evil. So now they're babbling. They can't communicate with one another and unite in pride and rebellion anymore. They're dispersed in different lands, in different languages. So why do different people, groups, occupy different lands and speak different languages in the world? Uh, this is a result of God's judgment at the Tower of Babel. Now, this is the context of God's blessing to Abram as recorded in Genesis 12. Now, Abram was a man from Ur of the Chaldees, which is the modern-day Iraq. Hold on to that thought for a second. We'll come back later. Genesis 12 says this. This is the blessing of Abraham, okay? So we've got a context to what's going on here. People are divided from one another dispersed throughout the whole world, and they don't speak the same language, okay? There are different ethnic groups now. There are different languages. There are different nations now. Here's the blessing of Abraham. This is what the Lord says. Go from your country and your kindred in your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in all the families of the earth, and in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Okay? So there's Abrahamic covenant, and it's going to be developed more. In Genesis 22, we hear these words. In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Okay? What's going on here? I need you to stay awake. Okay? <laughs> well, remember, God has just judged and spread the nations throughout the world and given them distinct languages so they couldn't unite in evil anymore. They're divided up. 
So, does God's judgment mean he's just going to leave the nations of the earth in the dark now? Dang, that judgment's pretty severe. No. God has a gracious plan because he's a gracious God, remember? Now, in this promise, God is saying in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 22, God is saying that he has a plan for the salvation of the nations that are spread out and divided up. They too will be blessed. So what's the plan, you ask? To answer this, we must go to the New Testament to get a full picture. Paul refers to this at length in Galatians 3. And this is how he puts it. Referring to this blessing of Abraham. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. It was a message of gospel beforehand when Abraham heard it. Saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. So God is seeking to make a name for this man Abraham and bless him and make him the mediator of the blessing to the nations. Not because he's morally virtuous, but because God is gracious. The promises in Genesis extend way beyond Abraham's lifetime and beyond his continent to people like us even today. Thousands of years later. They extend to every nation of the world and they are still extending to everyone today. Anyone from any land and any language can receive the blessing of salvation by faith in Jesus. And those of us who believe in Jesus are the offspring of Abraham by faith in him. This promise has traveled from the Middle East to us. We are some of the nations of the earth that this promise was intended to reach. And now the church, the heirs of this promise, have the privilege to carry this message out to the nations of the world. Why? Verse 2. That your way may be known on earth, your saving power among all nations. Now we can see why some have called Psalm 67 a missionary song. The author asked God to shine the light of his saving power on his people so they would spread the light to the nations in darkness. The writer of this missionary song wanted to see, wanted to see the true God of the Bible being worshipped among the nations. And next we hear how he prays for them in verses 3 to 5. Here's the request and reason for the nations to be praised. Verse 4. Oh, sorry, verse 3. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy. For you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Verse 
3 and 5 are identical prayers. In these verses, the word praise is repeated four times. So that's a major theme here. The author is praying that God would give the peoples of the world the privilege of praising him. He adds at the last part of verse 3 and 5, let all the peoples praise you. He's praying in line with Abraham's blessing, and it seems this person has caught a vision for the salvation and joy of the nations of the world. The author doesn't want his nation to be the only one enjoying God. He wants all the people groups of the world to enjoy his God as well. Listen to verse 4. Let the nations be glad and sing for joy, for you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon earth. Selah, which means pause, think about it. Why should the nations want to praise God? Well, in Psalm uh, 67, verse 4, it says because of his goodness. Why? Because you judge the peoples with equity and guide the nations upon the earth. His judgments are fair and unbiased judgments, and he guides the nations like a shepherd, an ever-present help in their time of need. This God's ways elicit joyful praise from his people. And God himself delights in filling the nations of the world with joy and gladness as they praise him. So this is a happy song, can you tell? But it's a happiness that is God-centered, isn't it? It is focused on him and the outspread of his salvation. And when we come together as a church of diverse nations and languages under the Lord Jesus Christ, God identifies with us, we are his people. And this is a beautiful thing. He's pleased. I love how C.S. Lewis captures this beauty in Screwtape Letters. How many of you have read Screwtape Letters? Okay. So this is a beautiful book. It's, it's a, quite an odd book in one way because Lewis is narrating the communication between the devil and uh, uh, his protege, Wormwood. So the devil's name is Screwtape, and his protege is Wormwood. And in this quote of Screwtape, Screwtape is referring to God as the enemy, and he can't stomach the fact that God really loves the peoples of the world, and he really wants the world to be full of distinct peoples who are his people. Distinct, yet unified as his people. Listen to this in uh, Screwtape Letters. This is, remember, this is uh, Screwtape talking about the enemy who is God. One must face the fact that all the talk about his love for men and his service being perfect freedom is not, as one would gladly believe, mere propaganda, but an appalling truth. He really does want to fill the universe with a lot of loathsome little replicas of himself. Creatures whose life on its miniature scale will be qual qualitatively like his own. Not because he has absorbed them, but because their wills freely conform to his. We want cattle who can finally become food. He wants servants who can finally become sons. We want to suck in. He wants to give out. We are empty and would be filled. He is full and flows over. Our war aim is a world in which our Father below has drawn all other beings into himself. The enemy wants a world full of beings united to him, but still 
distinct. The enemy wants a world full of beings united to him, but still distinct. And that causes the devil to be upset. God wants to fill the universe with joyful, distinct people united to him through Jesus. Are you, are you united to Jesus? No nation can say that this God wasn't interested in them. He made a way through Jesus for anyone to come. And he empowered his church to go make disciples of all the nations. It's clear to see that God cares and loves the nations of the world. Do we? Do we pray like this person did? What is the church doing about the people still in the unreached people groups of the world? According to Joshua Project uh, on Friday, there are still 7,372 unreached people groups in this world. Now, an unreached people group, according to Joshua Project, is this. It's a people group among which there is no indigenous community of believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize this people group without outside assistance. So reaching the unreached is not just evangelism. There's always evangelism to be done in our community, absolutely. But reaching unreached peoples is going into places where they don't have the resources to evangelize their own people. Well, I sure don't think God is done gathering people from the outer parts of the world to himself. And we prayed this morning that some of you would catch a vision for unreached peoples. And each believer ought to grapple, grapple with their role in world missions. How can we who love Jesus pray more, give more, and care better for the gladness of the nations? This uh, we should all take time to pray through and think through as a community, as individuals, in prayer to the Lord. One of the ways our church can care for the nations is by committing to helping the family Pastor Matt referred to from Iraq today. We could all grab a shovel, so to speak, and pick up something and help out with this family as this family comes from Ur of the Chaldeans, <laughs> Iraq, uh, comes to our land so that we could be a part in their life and, and, and help them to, to, to get their furniture, get an apartment, and the practical helps of all the paperwork of becoming a Canadian citizen. If you want to get involved with that, please talk to Pastor Matt uh, or myself afterwards. If you're wanting to dig deeper into this idea of the unreached, I just, it's not today's sermon for sure, but at least I want to say this. There's a book out called Let the Nations Be Glad by John Piper, and it's a very hard read. I'm going to tell you the truth. <laughs> It'll take you a year to read it. But it's based on this, and it's based on this text, verse 4, Psalm 67, verse 4. If you want to grab a passion for the unreached, it's going to take some digging, some learning, some commitment. But take a look at, let the nations be glad. All right, back to our text we go. Verse 6 shows the proof of God's blessing. The earth has yielded its increase. God, our God, shall bless us. This is the only line in the song that is past tense. The evidence of God's blessing is that God brings in a harvest of people. He has in the past, he is still doing that now, and he still will in the future. 
the earth has yielded its increase. And when we see people come to God through Christ, we must remember, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So all followers of Jesus have the responsibility of bringing the gospel to people, but salvation is God's job. That's what he's about. When someone comes to Christ, we realize people played a part in that by prayer, by dropping seeds in their life, by telling them the truth. But ultimately, God gave the growth and the new life by his spirit. It's always by his grace all the way. So the verse ends with confidence in God's care for his people and his blessing to be upon them. Our God shall bless us. And now the song finishes with this confidence and a final prayer that the ends of the earth would fear this God. Which may not sound like a good thing at first, but this is the fear that scripture applauds. Look at verse 7. This is the request and reason for more of God's blessing. Verse 7. God shall bless us. Let all the ends of the earth fear him. The Bible many times says, do not fear, and at other times makes fearing the Lord sound like a thing we should pursue by all means. Uh, Psalm 103 says, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. We want the Lord's compassion, so we want to be the kind of people that fear him. But then at other times it says, do not fear. So what does it mean to fear the Lord? Why is this such a positive thing? Put simply, it means to live in a covenant relationship with our Lord, under his lordship. Tim Keller says it uh, when he, he says, uh, when he explains it, fear in the Bible means to be overwhelmed, to be controlled by something. To fear the Lord is to be overwhelmed with wonder before the greatness of God and his love. It means that because of his bright holiness and magnificent love, you find him fearfully beautiful. Fearing him means bowing before him out of amazement at his glory and beauty. Have you found the Lord Jesus to be fearfully beautiful? If so, you're truly blessed. As John Newton says, "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed." May this blessing come to all peoples to the ends of the earth. Does this missionary song make you want to sing? Does it strike a chord with you? Well, let's do that. Let's let's sing now with the nations around us today. And pray as we sing that all the nations of the world would be glad and sing for joy in the gracious God. Of scripture. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for being gracious to us and blessing us and making your face to shine upon us because of Jesus and our connection with him. Now may all the nations of the world be glad and sing for joy in him. In Jesus' name we pray.